one of the things I learned about protocol is that you can have all the rules you want. The important thing is to be able to cope with the rules are being broken all over the place. Former Reagan administration U.S. Chief of Protocol, Selma Lucky Roosevelt. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. It's not a government job that gets a lot of attention or media coverage. But the office of the U.S. Chief of Protocol is a uniquely sensitive position. If it's done right, no one notices. But if it's done wrong, it could result in an international crisis. Former Washington journalist Selwa Roosevelt, who was always known as Lucky, was Chief of Protocol under former President Ronald Reagan from 1982 to 1989. In fact, that's longer than anyone else has ever been Chief of Protocol. I met Lucky Roosevelt the year after she stepped down from her government post. So here now, from 1990... Selwa Lucky Roosevelt. A lot of people seem to be under the impression that the chief of protocol's main function is to make out those seating charts at state dinners. Well, and that's just exactly what I didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> Although seating was, was something that came under my, my uh, aegis, mm-hmm. and I certainly had to know all about it, and I certainly had to do a lot of it, especially for the Secretary of State. But the point is that Seating is just a tiny, minuscule portion of what the chief of protocol does. There's so much else, and that's always delegated in any case. But the chief of protocol's main function is to supervise the important state visits and official visits of visitors that come to America invited by the president or the secretary of state. And that, in my time, in the seven years I served, was over a 1,000 people. And so you can see that that keeps you busy by itself. The other one is that we're the people that decide who has diplomatic immunity and who doesn't. And we give the authorization and we accredit ambassadors and their staffs. And as you know, we have 150 embassies in Washington and about 30,000 diplomats. This position is a, a long time honored in the, in the history of civilized nations. Uh, the, the idea of a, of a particular set of rules that you follow when you are entertaining a foreign leader or a foreign dignitary or a diplomat, that there are certain things you do, certain things you don't do, a certain way you do things, a certain way you don't. You have to know a lot of history to be in that position, don't you? Well, I think you do, and you certainly have to have a very good understanding of of the customs and mores of different countries. Now, protocol is the same everywhere, but you have to sort of be flexible at the same time and know that in certain countries, these things are important, like the greeting in the Middle East or Far East is far more important than we would attach uh, importance to it here in this country. And, uh, I mean, uh, whole uh, uh, wars have started over precedence, which I don't think we would go to war over a question of precedence. I mean, these things have historically been a problem, and the fact that it's been codified in an international accord shows you how important it got to be. And now everyone observes the rules. Really, even the communist countries did. Hmm. Is there a book that when you, when the, when you first open the open you, to put the key in the door and open your office that first day? Is there a book <laughs> on your desk saying, "Well, here are the rules to follow"? Yes and no. There is an order of precedence that you follow and you know about it. But rules, you sort of go uh, a little bit blind. You fly blind, and, and but you work it out. And one of the things I learned about protocol is that you can have all the rules you want. The, the important thing is to be able to cope when the rules are being broken all over the place or someone isn't cognizant of the rules. And it, you know, some of the most fascinating stories in your book were not when 
some little lowly staff member was violating the rule because you can deal with them, fire them, get rid of them, you know, <laughs> execute them at dawn or whatever. But what happens when a king, a queen, uh, a prime minister violates the rules? What do you do? <laughs> you certainly pray. <laughs> <laughs> and you hope, as you say, that the executioner isn't waiting for you. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, really, I found that kings and queens – the, the the mighty are much easier to deal with sometimes than the staff. In a way, while they uh, are first to notice if protocol goes wrong, they're also the first to forgive because that's sort of noblesse oblige, you know, it's an act of generosity. They want to show that they are above all that, even though at the same time they're accepting your apology or your explanation and and glad to have it. They, they don't want to feel that they've been slighted. That's the important thing is that if something goes wrong, first you fess up. You mm. do take the rap, and that's what a chief of protocol is for. You don't let your principals ever get blamed, ever. And then uh, when you do take the rap, you try to explain that it, human frailties and so on. You have to be kind of a buffer then between Absolutely. between our visitors and our hosts. Absolutely. And you are sort of the designated official host, at, mm. but – you're still not the president or the vice president of the secretary of state. So that's what you're there for is when something goes wrong, you're in between them. And uh, hopefully nothing ever gets uh, to the detriment of the president or the vice president of the secretary of state, at least if you're doing your job properly. And you have to be a very good explainer, don't you? Oh, yes. And you have to be very good at <laughs> thinking up an explanation very quickly. <laughs> we've had some very funny moments, though, for example, and we've had a few uh, failures. I remember when an African head of state came and all he wanted, it was a wonderfully successful visit, but all he wanted, this wasn't a state visit, so he didn't see the president. You know, they don't sometimes. Mm -hmm. And this was just a private visit, but he wanted that opportunity opportunity, the photo op, you know, with mm -hmm. the president. They tried to schedule it. It wasn't the president didn't want to. It was just one of those snafus. He went away absolutely furious, destroyed the visit, so to speak. But we made up for it later. I mean, he did come back and then it was done in the right way. However, that for a few months, there was a very hard feelings just because of a missed photo op. Five or ten minutes. That shows you how important these things can be. Yeah, I was. Uh, that's another thing that fascinated me as I'm reading the stories that you tell in the book. How the, the what would seem to the ordinary people to be the simplest little thing, the the colors you choose mm. at at a dinner, the, the 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 decorations, the 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 invitations. If it happens to be the wrong color, oh my gosh! You know, it's not just yes. a matter of clashing with somebody's dress. No, <laughs> no, it isn't anything to do with aesthetics. It's to do with symbol. For example, we had one man who came, and his uh, opposition party was uh, the symbol of that party was red carnation. Were red carnations? Well. We, of course, would have chosen red carnations for some reason for decor, I mean, you know. But, however, we found out about that in enough time to change, which was very lucky. Another time was the strangest thing. It was the Selenese. And he, uh, he was very upset, or his representative was very upset, that we had used blue and white ink on the program heralding his visit. So we had to change it to black ink and a white tassel, which is in the mm -hmm. center. Imagine. I mean, how could we possibly say, you know why? Because that was the symbol, uh, the color scheme of the opposition party. And so these, these very small things, which you and I might never think about, became very important in my, um, in my work. 
So, for example, in, in amongst the Arabs and the and the Israelis, the Israeli colors, as you know, the flag is blue and white. We never use blue and white for decorations for the, uh, an Arab visit. Arabs always have green; that's the color of the Prophet. So we sort of avoided that in in, in decor <laughs> for an Israeli. I mean, just things like that. But even things that would seem obvious that you don't serve pork, Sim- simple things like that. How could how do they slip through? Well. Those often did not, they honestly did not slip through with government, but they slipped through when we took them on the road. Mm. And we would send word ahead, no pork for our visiting Muslim, whatever dignitary, but they wouldn't remember that bacon bits on top of of spinach is also pork. You know, they'd they'd say, of course, no roast pork. But Mm. then they do something else that you wouldn't be able to anticipate. And so I, I describe one or two of those in the book, of course. And uh, the other thing that one can't anticipate is uh, the the things that sometimes a head of state will say or do that you sort of have to go with. For example, one uh, I'll never forget, the Tunisian uh, prime minister, Mr. Bourguiba, whom you know is a very wonderful, colorful c- character that everybody sort of has an affection for, including President Reagan and all his officers at the time. And so the president was giving him a sort of a farewell lunch. We knew it was his last visit to America. And the Tunisian president, who is getting a little bit blind and also is quite old, uh, looked up at the luncheon table just as they were sitting down. He saw this rather nice interpreter, a lady who of a certain age, I mean, not a young uh, uh Brigitte Bardot or anything, and he looked across at her and he said, if I were 40 years younger, I would propose to you. Well, he said it in French, and she understood it, but many people at the table did not. So he said, translate that, translate that. (laughs) And she blushed, and she got him red-faced, and finally he said, I insist that you translate it. So she, in her perfect... uh, interpreter's voice translated and broke up the luncheon. I mean, they, <laughs> the president and everybody else couldn't go on. <laughs> but these, there are no rules for things like that. Now, you know, one word that you've used now several times during our talk and, and many times in the book is you've used the word lucky. Uh, now, uh, you know, it, it strikes me that, that there's probably no coincidence. There's been a great deal of luck in your life, hasn't there? Absolutely. From the day I was born, practically, I was lucky to have wonderful parents. Then I was raised in East Tennessee, not a bad place to grow up in. Mm. Gives you a lot of strength and roots. But we were not rich. We had we were very poor, actually. But my parents educated us, gave, us, gave me a Vassar education. Again, a great piece of luck. And then... My greatest luck in life was, of course, meeting my wonderful husband, Archie Roosevelt, a grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. And then, so from the hills of Tennessee to the life as a Roosevelt, and then to a husband who was not only a, a fascinating man, but he had a fascinating job, and he was in the CIA. And I was a CIA wife for many years, and I also uh, lucked into a wonderful job as a journalist in Washington, very early on, had my own column when I was just in my 20s. So all of this combined to make me think that I've been truly blessed. And then one day, out of the blue, I was asked to be Ronald Reagan's chief of protocol. It's like a fairy tale. I mean, I can't believe that I've actually had all these wonderful things happen to me. With this, with that kind of life, it, you, mu- you must be, look forward to each day with, with great anticipation as to what piece of luck is going to come next. Well, I never... I, I'm a little bit superstitious. I'm terrified of over 
emphasizing the mm. word luck or lucky because if I think the evil eye will be drawn to me. <laughs> there you see how superstitious I am. Anyway, uh, the, the truth is that I do wake up every morning feeling that way. Uh, uh, I have always been a sort of an, like Ronald Reagan, one of the things that attracted me to President Reagan was the, his attitude that the, wor- the cup is half full rather than half empty. And I've gone through life like that. I think it makes a huge difference to how one faces adversities in life if one can take that attitude that some way or other you're going to get something good out of even the worst things that happen. And that attitude has got to shine through when you meet with all the foreign leaders who come through town and they have demands ranging from the from the sublime to the ridiculous and they throw these at you and they may be in a good mood or a foul mood but you have to deal with that somehow and if you look at that with that attitude of well things will work out that comes through doesn't it it really does and you know one of the things that flat i think pleased me most that a head of state once said to me he says you know ambassador Roosevelt, no matter what seems to go wrong or you we think might be going wrong you always manage to smile and I did. I always said to my staff, no matter how bad it is, smile. <laughs> because if you look troubled, they will be troubled. And that's the secret. Gee. Now, uh, you, you've you revealed so many, I won't say secrets, but just look at the behind-the-scenes things that you talk about. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege to interview Henry Haller on his one. He came out with the White House cookbook. Yes. Uh, and the things that he told me about preparing the dinners, not just what foods to choose, as we talked about a moment ago, but just the sheer numbers of things that you have to prepare. And again, you have to deal with, with enormous numbers of things and and moving crowds of people down thoroughfares that we can't negotiate at rush hour, let alone a bunch of diplomats. That must be an incredibly challenging task at times. Well, you remember the famous one, which I will remind you of, (laughs) when Gorbachev was here. I I almost had a heart attack that day. We were driving uh, in a 60-car motorcade, the largest I've ever been in, I was with Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister, and in front of me was the pres- vice president, now President Bush, of course, and uh, Mr. Gorbachev. Suddenly, we screeched to a halt in the busiest s- intersection of Washington. I thought, aha, assassination attempt, uh, accident, illness, heart attack. Something had to have happened. You don't screech to a halt in a motorcade like that. It's very dangerous, for one thing. Ah. Oh. I got out and I saw the Secret Service with their weapons out and and cocked. I saw them hustle Shevardnadze as if, you know, well, whatever it is, let's get him out. Of course, I was left there with a perfect time. <laughs> they don't care if somebody shoots you, right? <laughs> Never mind. And I looked up and there was Mikhail Gorbachev pressing the flesh. And you remember that night on TV, this woman said, that guy is a PR genius. Well, that's what he was doing. And I, it took me an hour or two for my heart to get back to a normal beat. Jeez. But that's the sort of thing that happens. And um, I, I was thinking of another rather funny event that happened, which also was extremely embarrassing during that visit. We remember there was a very uh, somber signing ceremony for the INF Treaty mm-hmm. in the White House East Room. And, of course, all we all sat there in hushed silence as those two gentlemen put their uh, signatures to one of the most important things that's happened in our lifetime. And what do you think happened to me? My purse handle broke, and these chains, links, 
clanked noisily to the floor. And everyone turned around and looked at me as if I had, well, I won't tell you. I mean, <laughs> it was too awful. And that was my finest moment. Anyway. During her seven-year tenure, Lucky Roosevelt presided over more than 70 state visits and restoration of the historic Blair House in Washington. In 2012, President Barack Obama awarded Lucky Roosevelt a presidential commendation for her government service. Lucky Roosevelt is now 91 years old. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a little sister's tribute to her famous sibling. My 1992 interview with Laura Joplin as we talk about her sister, Janice. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.